Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, my sister-in-law, Mae Kelly, has agreed to come on and share tips and tell stories about how she has remained such a paragon of health. I so admire you, May, for always being so dedicated to taking care of yourself, no matter how uh, stressed out you are or whatever's going on. You seem to make yourself a priority, but most of all, you make your family a priority, and that's a really difficult juggling act. So I really wanted to talk to you about how you've been able to do that. You are not native to the United States. No. You uh, grew up in Thailand. Um, I was actually born on a small island called Penang in Malaysia. My father was chancellor in, uh, from Thailand in Malaysia, so I was, my sister and I were born there. Then we moved to, back to Bangkok and, and lived there until I was nine years old. And then uh, my father continued with his uh, work, so was transferred to Washington, D.C., and so we moved here when I was nine. And I've been here ever since because um, it has to do with the war. The war in my lifetime has to do with the Vietnam War. Once the um, American GI started uh, taking R&R in Bangkok, my father said, we're not going back because the country will never be the same again. And you said you were nine when you came over. What was it like transferring from one culture to one that was quite so different? Yes, that's a great question. Um, I, I was not willing to move. Being the child that I was, I had my family and best friends there. So that was my main concern was leaving my friends and family, the rest of my family, and not knowing when I would see them. Culturally, I was quite buffered because being children of, dip, you know, diplomatic family, um, we were buffered in the sense that we were slowly integrated into the culture here. And, yes, it was very difficult for me in regards to the new food, and I had never eaten a cheeseburger, never heard of the word cheeseburger, couldn't pronounce the word because I couldn't say the sound CH together. Mm-hmm. So um, my first, uh, I would consider my name as the first word in the English that I could pronounce. Martin Luther King was just assassinated. So we went from war to war. There was so much there were people just rioting everywhere, and I remember being very shocked by it because I hadn't heard about people rioting before. Mm-hmm. And that was my American introduction. So a um, couple of questions I don't want to forget to ask you. Uh, you mentioned R&R. What does that stand for? Rest and relaxation for the okay. GI. Okay, Gotcha. And the other question, what part of the U.S. were you in when you came? D.C., when we first came, and then my father's term was finished, and he had already gotten us established here in America. He moved us to the Midwest. So 
So the bigger cultural shock for me was actually going from Washington, D.C. to Iowa because Iowa has a different culture altogether. They were all farmers, hardworking farmers, but mm-hmm. they didn't like us being there, I guess. My uh, my aunt and uncle uh, were foreign doctors in a small town in Iowa, so we went there to live near them. But once I went to high school in Iowa or even middle school in Iowa, I faced a lot of prejudice. It was just difficult, but we got through it. We Our parents always said, you know what, they don't understand. They know that you're different because you look different, so just leave them alone. Don't even respond. So that's how we got through middle school and high school, at least I did. I did mm-hmm. nothing. And, well, knowing your mom, of course, we all lovingly refer to her as grandma. How did uh, grandma support home life and, and support adaptation then to life in Iowa and getting used to the adversity that you were experiencing? She, um, I would have to give her all the credit, really, for my strength today because she had four children, and she had never lived in America except for the, those four or five years, five or six years, rather, um, you know, in D.C. And then she, her role was different than just being a mother. She had to go with my father to different outings that they would have. If, like, for example, when the royalty uh, made a state visit, she was part of the crew that they recruited to take the royalty around and to cook for them. So um, it was a position of honor for someone like my mother but or for anyone in that, you know, because the Thai people revere their king and the queen. The strength really came when I saw my mother raise, you know, making every, you know, trying to be positive, and um, when my father wasn't around because he went back, you know, he continued working and he had to keep moving from country to country. But we kept in contact with each other. But she was pretty much alone. Um, she she went into more of a typical housewife role, traditional housewife role in America, and did a lot of teaching at home and a lot of cooking at home, and actually I was raised on a very healthy, good diet all my life. And that's exactly where I wanted to go next. I wanted to find out how she was able to maintain traditions and eating whole food and living a healthy and physical lifestyle. Well, both parents were always physically active. I remember we would always... You know, every weekend, either we go to the ocean, this is in Bangkok, for the weekend, or we go up to the cabin that we had up in the foothills of the Himalayas, so northern Thailand. And uh, we always, you know, ran around. I mean, we would spend hours out in the ocean picking up seashells and whatnot. You know, I think in many cultures this is probably true, is that food is the center of our culture in that it, it it really lays out what our tastes are, how we present ourselves at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
how we have our conversations happen at the table, things like that. So she kept that up, and she was able to adapt her men or her um, ingredients because she could no longer get the ingredients in Iowa that she could get in D.C. Sure. So, for example, um, in those days in Iowa, you didn't get bok choy. She would use celery and I forget what the other vegetable and something else. So she would tenderize the celery, cook it long enough where it was tender, more like a cooked bok choy. And she would dress it the same way, you know, with the different sauces and spices and things like that. So she was a very strong, is a strong woman because she, over the years, she just kept adapting. And I think if you don't adapt, you just can't live anymore. She's amazingly creative, and it sounds like she always was just intuitive yeah. and, and just genius in terms of how to um, adapt, how to adapt to change, really, which, yeah. Yeah. which is a sign of great intelligence, I think. Um, Thank you. One of your major roles in life, of course, is being Ian's mother, my nephew. Um, mm-hmm. Ian is a remarkable young man. One of the smartest people I know. I would like for you to talk about Ian's diagnosis and how that has impacted your life. Blessings, challenges, please. The um, well, you know, I had a very uh, difficult pregnancy, so so he was actually born about ten and a half weeks early. To our surprise. His APGAR scores were 9 out of 10 both times. So that meant he was very healthy at birth. And then on his fifth day of life, he was overheated in an incubator um, for over eight hours and suffered greatly um, neurologically. He had a, uh, a grand mal seizure from being overheated. And from that day on, First five days before the overheating, he was doing everything that you could expect of a, a term newborn. But so our trauma really began before birth, ended after birth, and then restarted with day five of his life. And ever since then, um, he was diagnosed very early with autism. I had suspected based on his development that he was probably, um, that he really was autistic. He didn't respond to his name. He didn't, he startled, uh, continued to startle, unlike other babies. Once they become familiar with the sound, he would still startle to familiar sounds. So there were a lot of red flags in my mind, regardless of his developmental age. In the end, Within the first three years of life, he was diagnosed with um, TDD-NOS, which is Pervasive Developmental Disorder, not otherwise specified. Eventually, he uh, was told, we were told he has autism, high-functioning autism, and then Asperger's Syndrome. For everyone who's listening, um, May, you are a nurse by training, and, of course, your husband, my brother-in-law, is a um, is a physician as well. So there was a, an intense level of understanding and participation in taking care of Ian. 
Yes, I would, I would, I would agree to that. Except I couldn't say that as far as parenting skills. Oh, <laughs> sure. So new. I couldn't pick him up. I was terrified. He was so tiny that he he fit his his head was so tiny it was smaller than the palm of my hand. Mm. The issues developed. They were all between physical and psychological or mental as a result of his you know condition and the resulting in the diagnosis of autism. I don't know if your listening audience is familiar with autism, but there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding, I would say, with the general public that I've noticed over the years is that people believe that there's nothing wrong with Ian because he's hyperlexic. He has a huge vocabulary. He sure does. <laughs> for his age, and uh, but he has what they call hidden disabilities. So red flag for autism is inability to maintain social relationships or even like, you know, a bad giveaway is they look away um, when they're talking to you or answering your question. But he learned over the years how to look at people. He's learned to cope with his disability, if you will. But there's been a lot of work and a lot of coaching. We've had... Um, a lot of help. I mean, we called upon as much help as we could get because we as parents, you know, like, like I said, I was so afraid to, to even pick him up because he was so tiny, like was a little doll. I, I thought I would break him. I mean, and I knew from going through college in nurses training that you don't break a baby by <laughs> lifting them, you know. So the, the one challenge in the beginning that I had to overcome was uh, I went into a severe postpartum depression, and that was the thing that just about did me in. It was like I was dying. Did you receive any treatment for the postpartum depression? I did. I saw... Uh, no, actually, I did not. I was so depressed. I didn't bathe. I hardly ate. I lost weight really fast. It wasn't intentional. I was afraid to leave Ian's bedside. I just held him after I got a you know, learn how I could hold him and things like that. So um, my friends down in Kankakee, fortunately I had some really good friends, um, they saw, they were all mothers, um, so they saw what was happening, and so they discussed with my husband, four of them, the closest one, says, you know, we think Maeve's got depression. We like to take her to the doctor. He says, yeah, I thought so. So he said, fine. So I saw a therapist, psychologist, for a while, and that was about it. I'm glad. I'm glad you did. What are some of the positives? What are some of the um, blessings, surprises about Ian? It's just how he is as a person, and as an autistic person, they have different gifts. He has a different way of looking at the world than the rest of us who just muddle along because we see it all the same way. Oh, yeah, it's another day to go to work. He would be enthusiastic. Right now, he's doing an internship at the Lexus dealership. Like right now, he the way he looks going looks to going to 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 do the job he's trying to learn, mm-hmm. and he has so far been successful. But aside from that, it's just the way. It's hard to explain because he has a totally different view of the world. It's very unique and interesting every time he opens his mouth. 
And it's really funny when he thinks he's cracking a joke when it, and then he's, you know, jokes are only good if they're done at the proper time. So he thinks, stick in mind of an autistic person, that he can just crack a joke and he'll study right away <laughs> at that moment. <laughs> he He's just a unique individual. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> I understand. So in talking about everything that you've had to deal with, how do you manage stress and how is it in, why is it important to you to do so? Well, if I don't manage my stress level, um, it would be, I think I would go bonkers for sure. And how I manage it is really key. Key, always been key in my life, all the way through from the time I was probably, since I arrived to the U.S. I had to be very, I mean, I didn't have to be, but it just came naturally to be health conscious. And um, my father was actually a heavy smoker, and this is how it, how I came to this realization, I think, on my own. So I developed asthma from it. We were in the car. In those days, you know, you have to ashtray in the car. The windows are rolled up, and everybody smoked out. Um, and I developed a severe asthma attack. We didn't know I had asthma. And we, instead of going to some outing, we ended up in the emergency room. And the doctor told him he had to quit smoking or he was going to, you know, end up really injuring me. So he did. He quit cold turkey. All mm-hmm. the ashtrays were gone. Cigarettes, lighters were all gone. He no, didn't smoke another cigarette after that. Mm-hmm. Um so I realized is you're only good as good as what you put into your body. That's when I drew that conclusion when I was nine years old. I look for things that are on the healthier side. Now, I do snack and I eat some junk, but they're very limited, and I'm hungrier for healthier foods. I'm not really hungry for bad food, but... Exercise became a thing through high school. Were you an athlete in high school? Yes, I was. I was uh, I was in basketball, track, and um, I did a year of softball. I was not good in softball, so I stayed with track and basketball all the years in high school. So and And what about when Uh you got to college? College, I just did my own running. And I mostly ran or swam. Actually, I biked, too. I biked. I did all three sports on a regular basis, and that's when the triathlon started. Mm-hmm. Once I found how much fun it was, I just kept going. And it helped. That was key. became key to me. I noticed that I was able to better focus in school throughout college. I was sharper. I was more awake. Whenever I've been injured, I felt weaker and I, you know, from not exercising. Mm-hmm. So I just learned to, to read my body and my mind over the years that I know what I really need to help release that stress. And it is exercise. Something I admire about you is how adventurous you are. You love nature. You, you hinted at it a little bit with the triathlon. Tell us a little bit more about your adventures. Okay. 
This goes back when I first came to the U.S. and the first snowfall I ever experienced. I looked outside the window this one morning, and I was still in my pajamas. I said to myself, what are those white things coming from that gray sky? <laughs> that is bizarre. I ran outside barefooted, all excited, put my tongue out, catching all those flakes. Didn't know what I was doing. It was ice cold. My feet were frozen. My hands were frozen. I ran back <laughs> in. And then my parents explained everything. Oh, so my affinity is towards winter. Um, but I do enjoy all seasons. Um, you know, I just love being in nature. The challenge of being outdoors, you mean, you will, you'll never win mother, beat mother nature. You have to learn to respect it early on. You have to learn how to manage what can manage what you can control and don't let it get out of control in order to live in nature peacefully. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that challenge that just makes me feel whole as a person, like I am alive. It makes me feel in one in touch with the God that is all there, you know. It's it's just a very soulful, heart felt, meaningful events for me in life. So my sense of adventure wasn't really to me consider a sense of adventure. I just love it. I just love the outdoors. I just want to be there. This is part of who you are. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's uh, that's a really lovely and eloquent description. So would you say that's what being, you're welcome, would you say that's what being healthy means to you or how would you best summarize what being a healthy person means to you, May? I believe in a balance in the sense that, yes, you can use your technology. Yes, you can eat properly. Yes, you can go and exercise. Yes, you can splurge on this. But no, you can't splurge on it nonstop or you can't I think too much of anything becomes a bad thing. And spiritually, you have to, or I have to feel like I'm in touch with some something greater than me. And so meditation, calming, deep breathing. Um, I've never gotten into yoga. Um, But I do it when I run long. I feel like I'm meditating. Or when I ride long, I am meditating. It's it's very calming. If I had to use one word to summarize it, it would be the word balance. I very much appreciate what you said. And we are individuals. That's part of why I am so passionate about this making this podcast is to help everyone understand that there is no one-size-fits-all mentality or philosophy. It is different for everyone. Different things speak to different people. You just have to find that right balance, as you say, for yourself. Thank you so very much for being here with us today. I so appreciate your time and and your friendship, of course. Thank you. Thank you, Nadine, for this opportunity. And now it's time for practical tips. Mind, body, and spirit tip. Spend time in nature. It's good for your health overall. 
It helps relieve stress, prevents chronic illnesses, and connects you to a higher power. Thanks for listening. See you next time.